Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, I speak with interesting people in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. Today is a special episode for me. My good friend Elise Gray returns to the show to talk about her new book. You might remember Elise from the very first episode of this podcast. She has just published her first book, and it's called Compendium Pandemica, A Guide to Horrible Infectious Diseases. Today, we're going to talk all about the book and some of the other things she's been up to. And then after the show, stay tuned for a preview of my upcoming episode with Dr. Neil Thies. Right now, once again, here's Elise Gray. Okay, I'm here with Elise Gray. Elise, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Dennis. Good to be back. It's good to have you back. Now, it's been a little bit over a year since the first time we we recorded the, the very first episode. So this is kind of exciting to have you back on. The first time we talked, uh, a lot of it was about the book you were writing at the time, uh, which was called Death, It's a Living. And this time we're, we're going to talk about a different book that you just published. But I want to talk a bit about Death, It's a Living first. What's what's the status of that book? Well, Death of the Living is still in progress and looking for a publisher. Um, so stay tuned on that. I have not quite put it aside, but it's looking for a home. Okay, I understand. All right, so the new book then is called Compendium Pandemica, A Guide to Horrible Infectious Diseases, which right away, is I really love the title. Was the current uh, COVID pandemic part of the inspiration for writing this book? Partially. Um, it definitely freed up a little bit of time for me to write. At what point, like, did you start writing the book? Did you, like, when did you decide, okay, I'm going to put this other book aside and start writing this new one? This was in about April. Um, through my job, I work in research now and I had the opportunity to work from home and okay. I thought well since death it's a living is kind of on hold right now I should work on something else so then what was what was the process like for writing the book because it's arranged in you know, you go through different diseases different infectious diseases and you explain a little bit about each one so what, did you research everything at once or did you go like disease by disease and then write each one separately it was disease by disease, and I kept discovering new things with each disease. Pretty fun to write. Yeah, I bet. Uh, the book is dedicated to Dr. David Jeffrey. Can you explain who he is and how, how did he have an influence on you? He was my mortuary science pathology and microbiology professor, and he was the one who inspired me to become a pathologist assistant. The way he taught was wonderful. Um, it made diseases seem fun in a way. He used a lot of humor throughout his lectures. Um, they were all very factual, but there was humor, and that just really enhanced the learning. And that's what I wanted to do with Compendium Pandemica. Right, and you do. There's, there is quite a bit of humor uh, throughout the book, which, you, which, which I, th I think makes it easier to read or more, more interesting. All right. So let's get into kind of the layout of the book. You say in the uh, introduction, how you, how you chose the diseases and you used uh, four criteria to do that. And, and those are the number of fatalities, the level of scariness, the popularity, and then the ick factor. 
Can you tell me a bit about how or why you chose these four uh, categories in order to pick the diseases? Well, the book isn't covering every single disease, and I wanted to cover more of the ones that people have heard of or maybe had been concerned about. So I just picked things that were probably in the news at some point. Okay. Yeah. And there's quite a few of them that I remember hearing about either from school or from, you know, recent news or even not so recent news. And we mentioned the humor thing. And, and I think we kind of covered this already. I, I wanted to ask you, like, why was it important for you to inc include the humor? But it sounds like it was the influence from, from Dr. Jeffrey. Is that right? Exactly. It, I feel that it enhances learning. Um, anything, anytime you have an emotion associated with learning, it creates better retention. And for me, I think humor does that. It's not for everyone, certainly, mm -hmm. but for me, it had helped me. All right, now we'll get into the layout of the book. So each disease is, is presented with uh, different headings. And so we've got history and then life cycle, disease course, treatment and prevention. And I feel like the history sections, for me, I think those were my favorite sections because they provide a context for each disease. And they also kind of show how far humanity has come as far as improving things like sanitation and insect control and vaccination, especially. Uh, would you agree with that? Exactly. And it's amazing how long sometimes it took for humanity to realize, oh, we can easily prevent and control diseases if we just do these simple things. But you really have to study the past to appreciate the present sometimes. Sure, sure. And some of the diseases go go back. I think you call them old-timey diseases. <laughs> so they go back, you know, centuries. And then, you know, some are more recent. You even cover COVID a little bit. And it, you know, even though, you know, like I just said, humanity has come pretty far at the same time, you know, we still have some things we, we, we need to learn or um, perhaps remember. Certainly. And, and you can definitely see history repeating itself in some instances. Um, I think many people are aware that back in the 1918 flu days, there was an anti-mask league. So we can certainly see that oh, I today. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't aware of that. Is that that's that's real? It's not mentioned in the book, but it was something I came across during my research. But there are there are other examples like that out there. Sure. Yeah, definitely. And even still today. I, I love the way that you include throughout the book little kind of pop culture references. And, you know, like they said, they, like you said, they help to lighten the mood. And they're also helpful in illustrating some diseases. So how did you decide, like, what references to use? Did they just kind of come to you as you were writing? Or did, were there some that you wanted to include and you just had to find a spot for them? Yeah, it was a mixture of both. I came across some of them and some of them I already knew about. Um, and I did want to include the references because the book is intended for lay people to read as well as people interested in medicine. So I didn't, I wanted to make it more relatable, which is why I included those references. Yeah, that's definitely true. That, that's important to know. The book is written so that, you know, people that are educated in, in medicine can enjoy it. But it's also, like you said, for lay people, it's explained in a way that I think anybody can understand. And that's, that, that, I think that was a really good idea to do it that way. Thanks so much. I didn't 
really see any other books out there like that. So I wanted to make something everyone could appreciate. You know, one of the, speaking of the, the pop culture references, you know, you start off right off the bat in the, in, well, at the end of the introduction, it says, stay healthy, my friends, which that's a reference to the, uh, was that a Dos Equis commercial? <laughs> the most interesting man <laughs> in the world? Yes, yes. Okay. I, I tend to be a little quirky like that. I make a lot of, lot of puns. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was a good one. I, I like that one. And there's, there's so many throughout the book. Everything from you, you talk about uh, Monty Python to um, in the Ebola chapter, the the Hot Zone, which is a great book, um, and even Bob Dylan a, a couple of times. You actually mentioned that Bob Dylan kind of has what he has a couple songs that mention lung infections. Is that is that right? Yeah, he had a song about Legionnaire's disease, mm -hmm. and who knew? I didn't until I started writing this book. In the chapter on rabies, you, you tell a story about how you were giving, given a particular nickname in college. Uh, can you tell us this story? Oh, <laughs> so when I was in college, uh, around four in the morning one year, there was a loud disturbance in the dormitory. It was an all-girls dorm, and I woke up and I peeked out my dorm room and Sure enough, there was a bat flying around in the dorm, and the girls were quite upset. Mm -hmm. So I went and I scooped it up, and I, you know, I was, I really like bats. I think they're adorable, and I was just taking pictures of it. And yeah, I think in the book you call them little sky puppies. Is, is that how you? Yes. 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 <laughs> uh, as it turns out, that's a really bad idea. Don't handle a bat with your bare hands, and and don't pick it up if you can help it. You want to be careful because they can bite and they may have rabies. Right. So I use that as an illustration of what not to do when you encounter a bat in your house. Right. Fortunately, I did not contract rabies. So what happened? You just took the bat outside and let it go and it flew away and everything was fine? Yep. Okay. Fortunately for the little bat, I think... It was just a bit stunned and concerned about girls screaming. Yeah, well, I can understand that. Was this, now you said this was in college. Had you already, like, what was your interest as far as what field you wanted to go on at the time? Were you already interested in getting into the medical field? No, I was actually studying psychology, so I was completely clueless about the dangers of rabies at the time. Oh, okay. I imagine you were surprised to learn that later then. Yes. I wanted to talk a little bit about the chapter on syphilis because you mentioned in the book syphilis has kind of a dark history and it's also uh, unique in the way that it was named. Now you say in the book that the first recorded case of syphilis was in 1495 and then it was named in 1530. Can you can you talk about the, the way that it was named because that's I, I found that to be an interesting story. So the nature of syphilis was well known. It was it has stigma because it was known to be a sexually transmitted disease. So initially, uh, they were people would call the disease based on a country that they didn't like. So they'd call it the the French disease or the Portuguese disease, and it was just sort of an insult. But eventually, a uh, physician and poet 
named Fracastoro wrote a poem about syphilis, which was a, a shepherd boy who was cursed by the gods for insulting them. And he would describe the uh, treatment and progression of the disease. So eventually in academic circles, it became known as syphilis. And uh, that was the first step in taking away some of the stigma, but it took quite a while before that was erased. Okay. So syphilis was the name of the boy in the poem. Is that, is that how it went? Correct. Yes. Okay. Yes. That's, that is quite unusual. All right. And then some of the dark history there, of course, is the, the well-known Tuskegee study, which you do mention a little bit in the book. Can you kind of go through that just for anybody who doesn't know what that is? Yes. I uh, didn't know what it was actually until I started in research. And as researchers, we're required to learn about it, which is a good thing mm -hmm. because we don't want it to happen again, something like that. Um, it was a very racist study done back in the the 40s, I think. And it was done on black men who some of them had syphilis, some of them didn't. And they were told that they had bad blood. Uh, around the middle of the study, it was discovered that penicillin could treat the disease, but the men were not given that treatment, which is highly unethical. And eventually, um, some reporting got out about the study and due to public outrage, it was fortunately stopped. But it was a, a, a tragic study, and unfortunately, history is full of things like that. Right. And this is, I remember hearing about this study in school. This is a very, um, it, it's used as an example of bad research um, and, you know, just the things not to do. And it, it's still, I think it's still, it's, it's still taught today. It's still, you know, talked about is a just a really bad example. Mm -hmm. yeah. You mentioned vaccines several times throughout the book, specifically in hepatitis as well as influenza. So, so let's talk about vaccines a little bit and how important they are. The vaccines are one of the greatest scientific accomplishments of all time. Honestly, is how I feel. I mean, we have to use caution making them, and right. many of right. them are very well studied. Years, years, years go into the making of most of these vaccines. For example, you have polio vaccine. That's that's eliminated polio pretty much from most of the world. That's mm -hmm. also, I mentioned the diphtheria vaccine, tetanus vaccine. Tetanus is a bad way to die. So it's really good to get your tetanus shot. These things are things we used to fear, but now we don't have to because of vaccines. Mm -hmm. So I think they're pretty great. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, hepatitis B is another one that, you know, people like us have to get uh, anybody, any healthcare worker uh, has to get that, that series. And that's another one that is really important. Oh yeah. And, I'm so glad I got the hepatitis shot. Aren't you are too, aren't you? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm thankful every day for that one. And, you know, and this is really important nowadays. There's a lot of talk about a vaccine for COVID and trying to, to rush it to get it out there quickly. And it's important to know that almost all vaccines, it takes years, sometimes decades to research them, to test them, to, to get them right. So I'm a little, um, I guess, concerned about a rushing any kind of vaccine. Would you yes, agree with that? 
Uh, same here. Um, there was a, a historical incident with the polio vaccine. They they rushed to get it out because it was in such demand. Um, one company did not completely inactivate it, and people got polio who got the vaccine. So we really have to study it. We really have to be careful. Um, the clinical trials for COVID vaccines, both of the big ones, are supposed to go for two years. And I would not want it to take any less time, to be quite honest. So I yeah. hopefully, hopefully they will study it very carefully. Something else I wanted to ask you about in the tuberculosis chapter, you talk about the BCG vaccine. Can you go through that a little bit? Because I know that's also used, the, the BCG treatment is also used in treatment of bladder cancer. It was discovered that uh, the tuberculosis bacteria could provoke an immune response, which would treat early stage bladder cancer, which is fascinating. And I've also heard that recently the same BCG treatment is being used or studied, I guess, as, as a treatment for COVID. Have, have you heard about that? I have, and it definitely makes sense uh, just because it can promote that immune response. And, you know, that, that seems to be like a hopeful uh, path of treatment. And you wouldn't expect it because tuberculosis seems kind of scary. Yeah, definitely. But that, that's one that, that really scares me. You know, that's, you know, for, for us, again, you know, lung specimens with tuberculosis are probably one of, I think, one of the more scarier things that we encounter. Oh, I'm definitely terrified of yeah. those. And unfortunately, with the N95 shortage, it's even scarier right. because. I think you're more likely to get TB than COVID from a lung specimen, but I may not be correct on that. Have you um, read anything regarding that? I haven't, but I I tend to agree with you. Just because it's so highly um, infectious and COVID mm -hmm. is not as, I don't think it's as easily aerosolized as TB is. Right. I, mag I imagine it's different if, you know, that's if you're getting like a surgical specimen. I imagine it's probably different in like an autopsy or something like that. Right. Uh, in the last chapter of the book, that is the uh, the horrible infectious diseases survival guide. Uh, so you go through all of these different diseases, some of which are most of which are very scary, and then the 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 last chapter, then you kind of sort of ease the the fear a little bit. I think what why was it important to include this? Well, I think there's a lot of hype right now about infectious diseases in the media. And also my book was sort of hyped up as well. But in the end, it's important to understand that there are things you can do to protect yourself and prevent diseases. And I wanted to cover some of those things just to kind of give people a balanced perspective. Right. And many of those, I mean, I don't want to give away what's there because, of course, we want people to read the book. But many of those are things that we, you know, that you hear about in the news, you know, right now, are things you can do to prevent a disease spread. Sure. It's just practical things like taking care of yourself, exercising, et cetera. Right. Yeah. It's all getting vaccinated. <laughs> right. Again, that's an important one. Okay. I will link to the book in, you know, in the show notes and to, you know, your Instagram account, which you're still, you're still doing Instagram. I remember as you were going along writing the book, you were posting different things about various diseases. Yes. You can get a nice little sneak preview of some of the things in the book from 
my Instagram page. Some of it's actually verbatim in the book. Okay. Okay. So you're still doing that. So what's what's next for you? What what kind of new projects are you working on now? I'm working on a recipe book for uh, cancer prevention. Um, it's a lot of vegetable recipes. Um, vegetables are really great at preventing cancer. Okay. And of course, we have Death It's a Living still in the wings. Hopefully, a publisher will pick it up soon. Right. Right. Okay. And can we can we talk about the mushroom thing? <sighs> oh, that's an interesting thing. Okay. People will probably think I'm a little bit kooky for this. Definitely requires further research. Okay. During the pandemic, I've uh, discovered the wonderful hobby of mushroom hunting. And I recently had an interesting experience where I found some mushrooms called turkey tail, and I decided to make some tea out of them because in China and Japan, this is well known as a cancer therapy. And it's not just a, an herbal remedy. It's, well, it is used as an herbal remedy. It's also an actual drug called Crestin um, that's patented and in Japan, it's actually used in 25% of the cancer therapies are Crestin. Oh, really? So I thought, yeah, I thought it was strange we didn't have it in the U.S., but you can't really patent a mushroom. And there have been a lot of clinical trials done on it um, in Japan, but also here there have been a couple FDA-approved trials, but we haven't quite gotten there just because it's a natural product. and. We're in America, and the, there's capitalism and such. Right. So anyway, the mushroom experience. I had a tuberculosis test for work, and it was a blood test. It's a new type of test called the T-spot, and it checks for levels of uh, gamma interferon in the blood just as a, as a response to tuberculosis. And we were talking earlier about that immune response that tuberculosis promotes. And this is one of those things. Well, mine showed up equivocal, which means, well, maybe I have been exposed to tuberculosis. and Maybe I had it, but I know I didn't have it. Um, I haven't been exposed to it. I know exactly what my specimens have. Um, I look at the pathology reports for every single case. Right. And um, so I went and I got the skin test, which is that tuberculin protein. And sure enough, that was negative. So. I didn't have tuberculosis. However, something was tripping up the test, and I wondered, could it be the mushroom? And as it turns out, that mushroom does promote the same immune response. So perhaps that was in my blood, and that's what the test was measuring. So I really like to study that a little bit more. Wait a minute. So, so the mushroom, the mushroom tea, was yeah, the mushroom tea was wow. potentially. Stimulating my immune system that it tripped up the test, but it's just a theory. So okay. it requires further study. Mm -hmm. But I don't have tuberculosis, fortunately. Well, well, that's I'm not good. Sure if that's what you were um, asking about, but that's my um, latest adventures in mushroom okay. hunting. Okay, you know I have heard there's like mushroom coffee and and things like that. Like it's supposed to be it's supposed to have like more or better caffeine than regular coffee. And there's other like immune properties or things to help you sleep. And 
stuff like that. Oh yeah, the the um, the lion's mane mushroom. Yeah, for that's it. That's it. And uh, shaga as well, which mm-hmm. you can find those in the woods here. I actually found some lion's mane, but it did not give me the mental clarity I was seeking, unfortunately. Although it may be something you have to continually use. But it's interesting. Mushrooms are fascinating. Huh. Okay. Well, that maybe there's a maybe there's a book there in the future as well. <laughs> Mushroom adventures. <laughs> All right. Well, at least it was it was really great having you back on the show. Really appreciated that. Thanks so much, and everyone, go out and buy the book. Thank you so much, Dennis. It was great to be here, and I really appreciate it. Great big thanks to Elise Gray for coming back on the show. Once again, the book is called Compendium Pandemica, A Guide to Horrible Infectious Diseases. And there's a link in the show notes if you'd like to pick up the book. And I'm sure Elise would appreciate it if you'd like to leave a review for the book as well. The show notes are at peopleofpathology.podbean.com. And of course, you can always follow this show on Twitter at peopleofpath. I'm a member and the CFO of the American Association of Pathologist Assistants. This show does not necessarily represent the views of the AAPA and receives no financial support from the AAPA. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology Podcast. And now here's a preview of my upcoming episode with Dr. Neil Thies. We are in fact scientists, we are tissue biologists, and every day we have normal and experimental, you know, experiments by nature. Diseases passing in front of us under the microscope. What an extraordinary privilege that is. And if you pay attention to what's in front of you on the slide, inevitably, while you're looking to do your clinical diagnostic work, which is very pragmatic, but you order a special stain and for that tumor, But then you notice something in the non-tumoral liver or kidney or lung or whatever, and you see something that you don't expect. So it might be an immunostained tiny cell away from the portal tract in the middle of the hepatocyte. What is that? It's not a contaminant. It's not an aberration. It's not an accident. If you find something in a human body, it has meaning. The question is, where do you bother to track it down? Why I was so obsessive about those cells, I don't really know. I look back and I go, <laughs> what was I thinking? Um, <laughs> so, but the question had lodged in my brain. I'm like, what are they? I had to, I had to find this answer. Um, and so I did. So when you see something that isn't in your textbook, if a resident, I tell residents all this process, all the residents all the time, if you see something when you're previewing your slide and you take it to your attendant and you ask them, what is that? And they say, oh, something like, oh, you see that sometimes it's not important. That's a whole academic career right there. For more from Dr. Thies, tune in next week on the People of Pathology podcast.